it hasn't been said already, uh, it probably has, and uh, if it has, I may, may have missed it, but if it hasn't been said already, and if you're not already aware, today marks a significant day in terms of the Christian calendar. It's Palm Sunday. Uh, on the Christian calendar, that's the Sunday prior to Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and Palm Sunday represents, for those who may not know or need a quick refresher, uh, the day that the Lord Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, inaugurating the final week, which is known as Passion Week, of his earthly life. He entered the city on a Sunday, he was crucified on a Friday, and he rose from, de from the dead the next Sunday, two days later, three days later, Easter Sunday. In God's providence, our sermon series in the Gospel of John has us devoting our attention to the most significant events that happened between those two Sundays, Palm Sunday and the significant event, Resurrection Sunday. But the most significant event that happened between those two Sundays happened on Friday. Again, in God's providence, we found ourselves at that very place on this Sunday and that was not strategery among your pastors. We're not, we don't have enough foresight and planning prowess to figure it out. But in God's kindness, our sermon series has us today in John chapter 19. I invite you to that place. The sermon title is Jesus Sentenced to Die. John chapter 19, we'll be looking at government approval to execute the only innocent man who's ever lived. The account of that approval is in John 19, verses 1 to 16. Hear the word of the living God. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. 
But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Verse 13, therefore when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat, the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Join me as we pray. Father, I have no basis to understand why we just heard this passage when there are literally billions of people on the earth today who never seen a Bible, never heard a Bible, read to them. They have no idea that Jesus came, that he, through many convincing proofs, was evidently manifested as the Son of God. There are a countless scores of generations of people perishing today who never heard the gospel. They don't know of your saving love that you sent your son to be the redeemer by living that life we were called to live, dying the death we should have died, rose again from the dead, and and here we are, Lord. I can attribute it only to your mercy. And it's doubly absurd that I'm the one standing behind this book to proclaim it. Why am I here, Lord? Why us? Why here? Why now? There's no reason we should be here. Only your mercy. Would you arrest us like Jesus takes these pagans captive, carries out your omnipotent will? in the passage that we just heard read, Lord, would you arrest us? Would you take us captive? Would you lock us up and hold our face and turn our eyes to see Jesus for who he is and what you're accomplishing in him, through him, in this passage? We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus as prophet priest and king. It was at the end of John 18. As prophet, he had predicted with meticulous precision the way he would die. And unwitting sinful men carried it out precisely. He is the true prophet. He reveals God perfectly, not only predicting his death, but being the exegete, the one who shows God to men. He's the Logos. He is the prophet. We saw him as king, that he reigns and rules, that he has all authority, as will appear again in today's passage. And then as priest, standing in the stead of ruined sinners, Barabbas getting to go free and the Lord Jesus dying in his place as a substitute and a sinless substitute. Today, John gives us a slow-motion look at Jesus' experience before Pilate. 
the Roman governor. And I want you to see four things from this passage. It's not everything in the passage, but I believe it's what the Lord wants us to see today. In every step of the four, I don't want you to take your eyes off Jesus. In fact, I could say I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see Jesus, and I want you to see Jesus. First, I want you to see him in a unique glory. It's a glory that seems almost antithetical to glory. It's, it's It's a glory that doesn't look glorious. It looks inglorious, but I want you to see him whipped and crowned and robed and mocked and slapped. Look at him. Verses one through three, hear it again. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him or flogged him or whipped him. Verse two, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a purple robe on him. In verse three, they began to come up to him and say, hail, king of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Let's take each of those revelations one at a time, but look at Christ. Look at Jesus of Nazareth. First whipped. Verse one says in the New American Standard that Pilate had him scourged. There were three types of Roman scourging. We might call them mild, moderate, and severe, but I assure you that if you were the recipient of the mild, you may not consider it mild. The scourgings were largely dependent on the temperament of the whipper. Just like we know there are, you know, the proverbial good cops and bad cops. There are people who have power and use it moderately justly, and those who have it use it criminally. If this Roman soldier or these soldiers had a bad day, even the mild whipping may have been moderate or severe. The most severe type included a whipping that many of you may have heard of before because of the pieces of material affixed to the end of the leather lashes, the victim's skin through the lead balls or the pieces of bone or shards of metal would have been lacerated. The victim's bones would have been in that most severe whipping, no doubt exposed, large gaping holes in the skin of the back. It was not uncommon for victims to die from that most severe whipping, but in John's account, the scourging happens before Pilate sentences Jesus here in John 19.1. In Matthew and Mark's account, it's placed much later. Scholars conclude that there were likely, therefore, two whippings. This one, possibly on the less severe side, and then another that was more extreme. And it's not hard to deduce that the other one did happen because, as you know, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a man in his early 30s and had walked the known world, was certainly in some kind of decent physical shape and cardiovascular shape. He could have gone for miles and miles, which we can read in the Gospels that he certainly did over hilly terrain. He was unable to carry a crossbeam up the hill, most likely because he had been the recipient of the most severe whipping. But Luke 23 tells us something that John 19 doesn't. It tells us why Pilate had him scourged. Pilate whipped Jesus with intentions to release him. Luke 23, 13 to 16. 
It seems that Pilate thought something like this. If I take this guy and I go into a back room and I let the Roman soldiers bloody him up a little bit and I bring him back out, then maybe this incense mob will realize that this guy is zero threat to me and zero threat to them. Luke 23, 13 to 16 says he did so in order to release him. But the scourging did not placate the demonic, depraved, devilish desires of the Jews. I want you to look at Jesus, not only whipped, but also crowned. It's right there in the text for you to see in verse 2. This crown was impromptu, spontaneously made on the spot. It was twisted together, we're told, and it was a crown of thorns and put on his head. Obviously, this was the soldier's further effort to mock, to ridicule Jesus. Just doing a little bit of horticultural research on the day, it's not hard to deduce that these thorns probably came from the date palm. It's a tree that's indigenous to that area in that time. The thorns of that palm, you can go Google it yourself, would grow up to 12 inches long. This would not only have been humorous to the soldiers to mock Jesus this way, it would have been extremely painful to the Lord Jesus. One treatment of this that I read said that these edges of the thorns, no doubt pressed into the temples of Jesus down into his skull plate. But as we pointed out a few weeks ago, in our overview of John 18 and 19 and 20, this detail seems to be part of something bigger that John's trying to get at. For those who have spiritual eyes to see it and a little bit of biblical literacy to understand it, John is showing us something about Jesus in this whipping and this crowning that has to do with something bigger than what Pilate could even begin to understand or the Roman soldiers in their insidious sinfulness getting laughter out of a man being beaten almost to death. They can't see it. What's happening? John wants you to see that Jesus is indeed reversing the curse. There's no thorns on planet earth until Genesis 3. And in verse 18, they exist as a result of the fall of man and creation's subjection to slavery under sin. This, I believe, is one of John's subtle ways of showing that Jesus wore our curse. They literally pressed our curse on top of his head. This is what Galatians is talking about when it says on the cross, Jesus, quote, became a curse for us. He literally wore the curse of our sin on his sinless body. I can almost see, if you'll let me use my sanctified imagination and not think I'm getting too out there, I can almost see my initials whipped into his back as he endures this and that crown of thorns put on his head. But we're also told he's not only whipped and crowned, but he's robed. Look at it. The end of verse 2 says they put a robe on him, but not just any robe. It was a purple robe. It's obviously the royal colors. Is mocking him with his crown and his robe as a pseudo-king. They have no idea. They have no idea that they're bringing out the beauty of the glory of Christ 
that if you have a biblical lens to see it, you can't unsee it. Places like Exodus 39, 1 and 2 call for the priestly garments to be of purple. And I, begin, I believe again, John is subtly showing us that Jesus is the priest king, robed and crowned, as Tommy pointed out from last week's passage. But he's not only whipped and crowned and robed, he's mocked. Verse 3, hail, king of the Jews. One commentator wrote, once again, Jesus' opponents, in this case Gentiles, speak better than they know, for Jesus is in truth the king of Israel. John has a way of setting up his gospel that I think has the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit's inspiration all over it, because I don't even know if John could have been wise and crafty and smart enough to structure it this way. The beginning and the end of John's gospel are the same, the next parts are the same, the next parts are the same, until you get down into the middle, and I'll spare you from some of those connections, which I've tried to outline earlier, especially when we were in John 10, right at the heart of the gospel, the key verse, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down on my own initiative, this command I received from my Father. That's the middle of John's gospel. But at the beginning, you hear Jesus called disciples to himself. In John chapter 1, he goes and finds Philip. Instead of immediately coming to Jesus, Philip is like every enthralled with Christ Christian. He goes and finds other people and brings them to Christ. So he goes and finds Nathaniel. And he tells Nathaniel, we found the man of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip is essentially saying to Nathaniel, you're not going to believe it. The man standing right over there is the man about whom the entire Bible is written. And when Nathaniel talks to Jesus, this is what Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Here at the end of the gospel, pagan, unbelieving Gentiles. Hail, King of the Jews. In the previous chapter, when Jesus is before Pilate, it's this same episode. Jesus says to Pilate unequivocally, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He is the king. And they have no idea what they're saying. So he's whipped and he's crowned and he's robed, and he's mocked. But before we leave our first point, there's something else happening to him. He's slapped in the face. This again is in verse 3. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. I've already said it, but these soldiers are demented. They're devilish. It's hard to believe that it wasn't written this morning because if you just dial up your favorite social media feed, you'll find out today that there are people who just go around for kicks filming people getting beat to a bloody pulp and being killed live online for all, your, all of our viewing pleasure. These people are like that. They laugh when a man is getting slapped in the face, taking pleasure in torturing an innocent, unresisting man. But little do they know Every time they raise their arm, every time they open their hand, slapping was a more uh, inhumane way to humiliate someone than balling up your fist, which they also did, and punching him. But slapping him around a little bit to get kicks out of it, little do they know that they're fulfilling Old Testament prophecy with every smack in his face, and Jesus knows it. 
I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from their humiliation and spitting. So there's your Savior. Do you see glory in all of this? I think as we progress on, you will, you should. Number two is verses four to seven. Not only do I want you to see Jesus, but I want you to see Jesus. (laughs) Number two is not only seeing him whipped and crowned and robed and mocked and slapped. I want you to see deeper than the outside. I want you to look into his impeccable innocence, his guiltlessness. Verse 4 to 7, listen to it again. Pilate came out again and said to him, behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate then said to him, to them, Latin, ecce homo, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him. Here it is again, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Not only on the outside is he being tortured, but on the inside he's perfect. That's it, impeccable. He's innocent. He's the guiltless man. Behold the man. This is humanity as it was meant to be. Jesus is the true man. He's the second Adam. He's the real Israel. He's the son of God. He's what humanity was supposed supposed to be. Pilate has no idea what he's saying. But he does know, according to his standards, that Jesus is innocent. He is guiltless. Look at Jesus as we saw him in the earlier verses as crowned and robed. He's bloodied and battered. It's dripping down the sides of his face. The crown of thorns penetrating his head and his temples. Jesus brings him out like this. We're supposed to see him brought out like this. He's still got the robe on him. He's still got the crown of thorns on him. The text tells us so. And in that condition, Pilate says, this is John's irony, behold the man. What a loaded statement. Pilate is certainly saying this in mockery of the Jews. Oh, this is the man you all are afraid of? Look at him. He's no threat to you. He's no threat to anybody. But in deep irony, once again, John loves so much, Pilate is affirming something so deep and so profound. Jesus is the man. He is the true man. He is Adam. He's the second Adam. He's the human who lived the way you were supposed to. As Jesus stands before the mob of dehumanized sinners, he's humanity as it was meant to be. But John mainly wants us to see, I believe, in this portion of Jesus before Pilate and the mob, his guiltlessness. Three times. Last week's text, John 18, 38. I find no guilt in him. In our passage, John 19, 4, I find no guilt in him. And again, John 19, 6, I find no guilt in him. This is the bigger picture of John's purpose 
in writing the whole gospel. If you cannot come to the conclusion that Jesus has no sin, then you can't be saved. This is John's purpose in writing the whole gospel. In chapter 20, he tells us that he wrote the whole book so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, who was long ago promised in the pages of the Old Testament, that He is the Savior. He's the Anointed One. He's the Christ. And if you believe, you will have life in His name. So I believe John is quoting Pilate here, I find no guilt in him, times three, to show us something through Pilate's, Pilate's coming verdict that he condemned an innocent man. They're too blind by their sin to see it. They're too enraged in their vitriol against God to receive it. But can you see what John wants you to see? Standing there with a purple robe and a crown of thorns, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can you see in Jesus zero blemish, radiant holiness, so pure, so spotless, so sinless, this Lamb of God, that if God were to pull back the veil, it would blind you like the Mount of Transfiguration. You would cover your face. You would hide underneath your chair if God pulled back the veil and showed you the glory of the innocent Christ today. He's the sinless victim. That's what John wants you to see. But before we move on to number three, I want you to see the demand to crucify the guiltless man. Three times from Pilate, chapter 18, 19, 19, I find no guilt. So how does the crowd respond? Crucify him. Crucify him. They don't want him humiliated. They want him dead. This is the way your sin always works. Sinful men cannot tolerate the presence of a holy God. He's innocent. They're guilty. So their only possible conclusion is get him out. Finally and forever. Not just humiliated, but dead. Their consciences won't tolerate the purity of Christ. Ironically, and this is where John's irony may reach one of its heights, they were the pure ones in their eyes because what do they say they're doing? They're upholding their law. Our law doesn't let a man say things like he says. So they're the spotless ones. Meanwhile, Jesus is the personification of the law perfectly kept that they presume to be keeping, standing right before their eyes. You see, to encounter Jesus truly doesn't only let you see that He's holy and that you're sinful. That's true. But that He's of such a holiness, such a categorical, transcendent differentness than you. He's not just the best person you've ever known, infinitely better. He's not just the best man you could imagine. He's, he's categorically different. And when you encounter the holiness of God in Christ, then you begin to see your sinfulness for what it truly is. He's the law perfectly kept, standing right in front of their face. But what do they mean when they say, 
Here in verse 7, we have a law and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. What they mean is Leviticus 24. They mean, quote, moreover the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. So what have we seen this thus far? John has shown us that Jesus is the innocent, perfect man who has revealed himself to be God. He made himself out to be God, therefore by our law he ought to die. The innocent, perfect man who's revealed himself as God in the flesh. So what's next? Jesus, verses 8 to 12. The authority of God and the guilt of all men. Let's let's read it again, verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted you from above. This reason he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So you see, the Jews started in one place and transitioned to another place. Pilate was totally expedient to them. They were trying to utilize Pilate to achieve their sinister ends. They had made a decision. We already know from John chapter 5 and beyond, they wanted Jesus dead and they were going to do whatever it took to accomplish that purpose. Pilate, they think, is just a pawn in their hands. They were using the political system to achieve their sinister spiritual ends. Pilate was their pawn. He was toying with them, no doubt. This is the guy you're worried about? Crowned and robed, bloodied and battered. He was toying with them and they were, meanwhile, maneuvering to him, 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 him in to their death verdict for Jesus. But what do we see in verses 8 to 12? We see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man coalescing. Both are true. We're not fatalists. Mechanistic. We're not saying God is sovereign As Spurgeon said so beautifully, and I totally agree, he's so sovereign that not a mite of dust floats through the sky without God's sovereign ordaining its flight. I believe that. But we're not fatalists. We're not saying that because God is so sovereign, man is therefore not responsible. In this passage, you see both in hypercolor. You would have no authority over me unless it had been granted you from above. And Jesus makes a striking statement about sin and its severity or degree. He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Just to take that verse from the back to the front, that's verse 11. He who handed me to you Uh, Bible interpreters are not in total agreement over 
who Jesus may have had in mind? Was it Annas? Was it Caiaphas? Was it Judas? Was it the Jewish nation? Was it Israel? Was it this Jewish mob? Was it another individual? Most tend to conclude that Jesus must have been thinking either of Judas, most prevailing view, or Caiaphas, who just immediately had the conversation with Jesus. Either way, the point is plain. There are, in Jesus' mind, degrees of severity for punishment of sin in God's sight. He who handed me to you has the greater sin. Hell is awful. No part of it will be pleasant. But I do believe Scripture teaches that there are degrees of punishment, even in hell. The least degree, if you will, will be so horrendous that C.S. Lewis said, if you could see a saint suffering God's wrath right now, it would be such a putrid sight that you would immediately vomit. So no part of it is pleasant. But Jesus, I believe, makes plain in this and other passages that there are degrees of punishment in hell. But his primary point is that Pilate's authority is derivative. Not native. It's not inherent. He gets it from somewhere. And ultimately, if you go all the way up the chain, it comes from God. Jesus wasn't fatalistic in his understanding of God's providence and sovereignty. He's the one bleeding. He's the one battered. He's the one crowned with thorns uttering these words. But no matter what Pilate or this mob did to him, Jesus was able to see with precision clarity that God was reigning over it all. Do you see the hand of God ordering the affairs of your life this way? And if so, do you see that he brought you here today to hear about this Jesus? suffering this fate for the salvation of your soul? When Jesus utters these words, I can't help but think of the many, many, many connections that John has to Genesis. These can't be accidental. And just as Genesis ends with a man elevated to the highest place after being betrayed, even though innocent, And the book of Genesis, I'm thinking of Joseph, would say at the end of his life, God was in control of it all. What you meant for evil, Joseph says to his brothers, God meant for good, for the saving of many souls, or for the preserving of many people alive. But there is a difference between Genesis and John, when Joseph and Jesus are both eventually elevated. Joseph says his statement about God's sovereignty over the hardest things in his life after they had come full circle. Jesus speaks of God's all authority while he's experiencing the worst. Verse 12, Jesus has declared God's authority to Pilate, and Pilate then makes efforts to release Jesus. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us more detail that I won't go into now, but somehow the crowd is privy to Pilate's intentions to release Jesus. And they weren't going to have it, so they cry out, if you release this man, verse 12, you're no friend of Caesar, everyone who makes himself out to be a king 
opposes Caesar. So here's Jesus, bloody and battered, looking totally out of control, boldly declaring that all authority is ultimately in the hands of his heavenly Father. This brings us to the final, and I believe main point of the passage. The king is handed over to the criminals. Verse 13 through 16, therefore when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, it was about the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. Again, mockery. Verse 15, so they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Again, mocking them. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. What a statement. Verse 16, so then he then handed him over to be crucified. This judgment seat, the Bama seat, the place where the judge would sit, it's a place where the official verdicts would be handed down and pronounced. It was 2,500 to 3,000 square foot stone paved place with an elevated seat that the governor would sit on to make his judicial verdicts. But the irony could not be more thick. D.A. Carson wrote it this way, the promised Messiah is the one whom the Father himself had trusted all judgment unto. John 5:22, Jesus said, I don't judge by myself. The Father is the one who's entrusted the role of judgment to me. The New Testament is crystal clear that it's this Jesus who after he rises from the dead and exalted to the highest place, it's this Jesus who Peter says, you crucified, who God raised from the dead, Peter said, because it was impossible for him to be held by death's power because he's the prince of life. You can't keep him dead. It's this Jesus Paul said in Athens at Mars Hill, this is the Jesus who's going to judge all men. Can you imagine what it was like when Pilate stood before this Jesus in all his regal majesty and saw his unmitigated glory, everything revealed to Pilate and Pilate trembling down to his bones when he stood before this Jesus? In even more striking irony, Pilate sitting on the judgment seat, but with deep meaning, I believe John wants you to see when this happened. The day of preparation for the Passover, verse 14. What time was it? John's not specific, and he's not specific on purpose. It was about the sixth hour. I could tell you a bunch of reasons that we're not supposed to take this time meticulously, literally, chronologically about the sixth hour. Some people who try to force a particular specific moment on a clock into John's narrative, therefore find contradiction to the timeline of the synoptic gospels and the crucifixion of Jesus found there. But I believe John's after something here that's less meticulously chronological and more deeply theological. To be clear, I don't think John got it wrong. It was about the sixth hour, but how did you tell time when nobody had a watch on their wrist in the first century? You look up at the sky 
and you see about where the sun is. And here it's about 9 a.m., and here it's noon, and here it's 3 p.m. And that's the way the gospel writers tell us about the crucifixion of Jesus. But John just doesn't just tell us about what time it is, which the sixth hour would be noon. He tells us what day it is. It's the day of preparation for the Passover. What does that mean? It's about the time on the day when the Passover lamb would have its throat slit and be slaughtered in the stead of sinful people. That's what John's after. Gerald Borchet writes so well, I just got to read it. I believe there is more to this sixth hour than mere chronology. The designation the sixth hour was absolutely crucial for John because this was the time on the day of preparation when the Jews began their preparations for Passover in earnest. Any leaven in the house had to be collected and burned. Labor had to be stopped at this time. The major task of slaughtering the lambs in preparation for the Passover meal began. This would be an appropriate general time designation for the sentencing of the Passover lamb in keeping with the way John has presented his major theme of the Lamb of God and Passover throughout his gospel. Starting in chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. It's from beginning to end. The new exodus, Borchet concludes, God's deliverance was about to begin. The sacrificial lamb was being sentenced. Another commentator, one sentence long, If this refers to the day before the Passover, i.e. the day in which one prepares for the Passover, then John is presenting Jesus as being sent to execution about the same time the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. And I've prayed and prayed for this moment of this sermon on this day for so long. If you don't get this lamb's blood covering your life, you have no hope. He's it. There's no other way to be made right with God than to have the blood of this lamb splattered all over your life. And every single person in this passage is so close, yet so far away. Pilate, behold the man. He is the man. He is the second Adam. He is true humanity. I find no guilt. I find no guilt. I find no guilt. He's not only the man, he's the innocent man. It's not only about noon, he's the sacrificial lamb. It's Passover weekend. John wants you to see in Jesus the Savior for your soul. And if you won't have him, it's not because God hadn't done enough for you. Those who oppose this gospel ironically end up fulfilling it. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. I believe that in some way, because of God's omnipresence that I'm not going to preach a sermon on now, that God is very present in hell. He's everywhere all the time. And I believe that these people who said, we have no king but Caesar, have their sinister, damned noses in the dust of hell, acknowledging the almighty reign of the king of the universe. They proved God's purposes 
in crucifying Jesus. They didn't impede God's purposes. Why did John write all this? Why do we have chapter 19 in such meticulous detail? There's so many details that I just breezed by and didn't say a word about. Why do we have them? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's it. So my appeal to you today is to say, use your sanctified imagination for just a moment. Can you see your initials whipped into his back? Can you see your name graven on his hands? Can you see him standing there silently? 1 Timothy 6. Revelation 9. Can you see him standing there silently? 1 Peter 1. Entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, not opening his mouth. And can you see him there silent? Not because he's scared, but because he's in absolute control. He's the potentate of the universe. He is, all those passages I just alluded to, King of kings, Lord of lords. He's the total sovereign of the universe. Every single person, Philippians 2, is going to bow down before him one day and say, Kyrios eis Christos, Jesus Christ is Lord. That day's coming like a freight train. And you can't do anything to stop it, just like these people could do nothing to stop their role in the death of the Son of God. But why did God carry it out? I'm going to stop with this sentence. I can't be- it, I almost can't believe it. It would be too good to be true if God hadn't said it. It's why I put the passage on the screen at the beginning of the service. A present tense word in the original. But God demonstrates its present tense. Right now, not 2,000 years ago, right now, God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you throw your helpless soul into the arms of the Almighty Jesus? Would you come to Him, not clean yourself up first, but go to Him acknowledging that in His holy presence, Your sinful self should never draw near. But would you not degrade the power of the cross, but embrace it and say, he must be some kind of lamb. If Hebrews 4 is true and Hebrews 10 is true, he must be some kind of priest and some kind of sacrifice. If the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, but he by one offering perfected for all time those who draw near to God through him, there's a way you can respond very differently than Pilate and very differently than this crowd. You can come to God through him. You can bathe yourself in the blood of Christ and say, I have no hope that I'll ever be right with you except the blood of the crucified risen lamb. But if you won't come that way, I've tried to be as clear as I possibly can. If you won't come that way, you will never come.
He's all our hope. Would you join me at his throne right now in prayer? Oh, Father. I don't know how to say it different. I don't know how to say it more clear. But you know how to take the words of your word and penetrate the heart of any person. And that's what I pray, Lord. I pray that the lamb who was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. And I pray, Lord, that as we sit silently, let this song wash over us about behold the man. I I pray, Lord, that you would minister so deep to our souls that if we wanted to explain it to somebody, we wouldn't even have words to do it. Just come and meet us and minister to us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.